9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is getting towards the end of the week, and so, of course, we are joined here in New York City by Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And, of course, in Washington, D.C., we are also joined by Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, practicing physician, formerly of the Obama administration. How are you doing, Kavita? Good. And if you pay me enough, I'll get you a vaccine. So putting <laughs> that out there. I don't Let need you... any vaccines. Oh, any I'm vaccine. d- no, this is for all, you know, general listenership. I'm yeah. kidding, of course. <laughs> yeah, but... right. Well, that'll that'll keep you from getting confirmed by the Congress at some There's point. A, a, Greg knows, as Greg has covered all too well, basically anybody with any social presence of any kind will get you not confirmed by this Congress. <laughs> so. Yes, that's that's true. And as Kavita tipped our hand here, we're also joined by our old friend, uh, Greg Sargent of the Washington Post, author of The Plum Line, or co-author, a regular um, uh, a commentator on things that are going on, one of the crankiest guys in Washington. How are you today, Greg? Pretty cranky. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's got you pissed off today, Greg? Oh, where do I begin? Well, begin. What, what was what's the last thing you wrote about? There's, I, just, I, I just thought this is what we would do today. We would go around, you know, we all thought that when, Trump left, everything would be fine, and we would just relax, and the world would become boring. And here we are a few weeks later, and everything is still incredibly irritating. And we've got the January 6th hearings, and we've got this ridiculous thing that's going on now on the floor of the House, issues over the filibuster, the governor of Texas telling people they don't need masks anymore. And I'd just like to know, and I will go in sequence to each one of you and find out what's really getting under your skin right at the moment. And I'll start with you, Greg. Okay, what's really getting under my skin right now is, is Kirsten Cinema's arguments against reforming the filibuster. I sent an email to her constituents saying, uh, you know, filled with boilerplate about how keeping the filibuster allows for taking seriously the minority's point of view, and it leads to common sense bipartisan legislation and so forth. And what's just frustrating me to no end about this is the cynicism of it, because she knows as well as anyone else, or I hope she does anyway, that under the current world that Mitch McConnell has created for all of us, the filibuster is nothing but a tool to frustrate bipartisan cooperation in every way possible. He uses it uh, to deny cooperation to the majority for the express instrumental purpose of casting democratic presidents as failed conciliators and failed leaders. And so we're now in a situation, by the way, a very interesting thing just developed. Um, Politico quoted Murkowski saying something like, you know, now that I know this thing's gonna pass, um, maybe I'll work with them and try and get something into it. And of course, that's the perfect argument against the filibuster because the fact that it can pass by simple majority and Republicans can't block it 
actually incentivizes Republicans who want to cooperate in good faith to try to do so, to get something into the bill. And so for Cinema to be telling her constituents a, a set of just straight up lies about how this all works is just driving me crazy. Well, it should drive you crazy. And the same arguments, you know, offered up by Manchin, for example, drive you crazy. But what I'm going to try to do here, and as a, as not be just a provocateur, I will try to soothe each one of you as you describe what's bugging <laughs> you. Um, and in your case, uh, Greg, let me uh, soothe you with, you know, the fact that Elaine Chow may end up in the slammer. Does that help? Not really. <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm I'm trying, you know, and of course what I'm referring to is the IG um, at the Department of Transportation recommending that the Department of Justice look at abuses by Elaine Chow, also known as Mrs. Mitch McConnell, um, uh, where, for example, she had people at the Department of Transportation doing promotion for her father's book and other things that benefited her family um, company, thus making her one of four members of the Trump administration who had an IG referral to the Justice Department. Um, uh, uh, that's, well, I thought it would comfort you, but maybe we'll come around. Uh, Kavita, what's bugging you at the moment? Uh, well, I am from the state of Texas. So, you know, just when I thought this stupidity couldn't get any worse. Greg Abbott just doubles down to demonstrate how he hopes he can distract from the debacle that was ERCOT, not to be confused with EPCOT, potentially another disaster, but ERCOT and its leadership, whose CEO resigned, by the way. It's been the thing that's amazing is that post Trump, David and Greg and Ryan, I thought that we would have some. I don't know. I thought there would be, you know, we had so much noise during the Trump administration. It was almost like every second there was something that would whiplash you and you couldn't believe it. And then it just got distracted by Trump doing something else. feels like that's happening now because it's just amazing that uh, there's so much. So that's bothering me. And then I, I, I did want to kind of, dig, you know, I worked with Neera Tandon for years and I'm still so bothered by just everything that happened. And I've been processing kind of what did I expect? Did I expect the president to fight harder? And and I, you know, having worked in the Senate, you know what I, I also is bothering me? And it has to be said, because we're often very polite in this podcast. And well, not often. You're not very polite. I'm very polite. <laughs> but I will say this. We're putting a lot of appropriate attacks on cinema and mansion. I can tell you right now, knowing a lot of those moderate Democrats as I do, there was a sigh of relief when minimum wage went down. There will be a sigh of relief when the parliamentarian rules down some of these kind of broader access provisions. There's just a side to the Democratic Party in the Senate that doesn't have balls anymore. And I, I frankly don't see how that's going to stop anytime soon. So that's what's bothering me. Well, it's really hard to comfort you in terms of all of that, except to know that that Nira will end up in the government. They will give her a job. And, you know, um, hopefully it'll have to do with, you know, relations with the Senate so she can get some payback. Um, uh, but but I but I do have to agree with you that this uh, hypocrisy about, you know, hurting the feelings of people with tweets, which they're doing now with our friend uh, Colin Call. Yeah. Um, in his undersecretary of defense hearings, where some of the people are objecting to his mean tweets, uh, is just 
absurd. And it's setting a precedent that what's disturbing me on so many levels is that then, I mean, there's many of us, me included, we're being told, well, so be careful what you tweet, be careful kind of what you say, it will come back to haunt you. And I said, only in select cases. I said, for what, women? I, you know, Vanita Gupta. I mean, there's just, anyway. So yes, that's what's bothering me. Yeah, well, my my hopes of becoming ambassador to Barbados are done. <laughs> um, oh, I, and I would have taken any place with a beach. I, I just, I want you to know that. Ryan, what's bugging you? I'm gonna go deep, David, so that you can't rescue me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the Senate hearings on the Capitol attack have upset me a great deal in the sense of the missed opportunities. So we had the Senate Judiciary Committee have uh, Christopher Ray finally make a public appearance and have to answer questions. And um, they treated him with kit gloves rather than the head of the FBI uh, responsible for either a gross intelligence failure or a gross law enforcement failure in terms of the FBI being in there to stop this. And uh, that just didn't really get dealt with. Um, so Andrew Weissman, you know, who's many things at the Justice Department, but including former FBI general counsel was in Meet the Press after the hearing. And he said something very similar uh, to what I just said. Um, and uh, so that's, that was that hearing. And then yesterday we had the hearing where there was a senior member of the Defense Department before the Senate Rules and Homeland Security Committees and not a single Senator, Democrat or Republican, asked a question about the Defense Department's communications with the White House on January 6th. It was a huge amount of questions about January 6th. Not, I believe there was not a single question um, about DOD communications with the White House, which to me is potentially the holy grail um, in terms of uh, a breakthrough of for the American public and a whole bunch of other things. If we uh, crack that nut about what was going inside the White House, going on inside the White House and the delays with the Defense Department um, authorizing the National Guard. Well, that I, can't, I have nothing to say to, to make you feel better about that, because that's what got under my nerve. And I had a, I had a, I had a piece in the Daily Beast about this because I was watching these hearings and I was thinking, okay, well, somebody asked about, you know, the origin of this, who incited this, who was behind this, who paid for this, not, you know, what kind of locks did you have on the door of the Capitol? And, and everything was focusing on minutiae and after effects. And, you know, it's very, you know, when the, 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 the FBI director gets up and he says, Domestic terrorism has risen 100% since I took over. There are now 2,000 cases. It's now the biggest thing that we deal with. And this act on January 6th was an act of domestic terror. And we don't ask, well, who's behind it? Why did it happen? Who made it happen? Which, by the way, relates directly to your question about communications between the White House and DOD, because, of course, Trump made it happen. Um, and the Democrats, to go back to Kavita's point, they didn't push this. I mean, the Republicans were defensive, but the Democrats didn't do what they should do. How, what did you think of all that, Greg? Well, you know, the, the question of, 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 of what caused this whole thing, what's striking to me about what you guys are saying here is that you couldn't ask for something that is more tailored to help Republicans 
than this way of treating what happened, allowing it to sort of turn into a, 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 a kind of chase down rabbit holes in terms of what went wrong with security and, and how, who called whom when and what report got to what desk at what point. Um, the big picture here is that the president of the United States incited this domestic terror attack. And, you know, we're in the middle of a debate over how to uh, create a commission that's going to look into this thing, or we've had this debate over the last week or so. And Republicans have explicitly said, we don't want this to look broadly at what happened in the way that you're talking about here. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that the Republican Party can't allow a full accounting of this domestic terror attack precisely because they are implicated in it if that examination happens. And for, for Congress to sort of turn this into a, a, a kind of you know, sorting of pennies and nickels and dimes when the big picture is that the president incited a domestic terror attack with the full backing of the Republican Party, um, at least in terms of backing for his broad effort to overturn a, a US election, just it's a stunning abdication. And, and, you know, Democrats are at fault here too, because Pelosi, for some reason that I still can't understand, kept saying over and over, oh, this will be bipartisan. You know, Tom Keene and Hamilton say that it should be bipartisan, bipartisan this, bipartisan that, bipartisan the other thing. We can't have a bipartisan accounting into this. One of the two parties was responsible for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Josh Hawley, when he was questioning Ray um, on, on, on the first day, was kind of like, so you were listening to cell phones. Any with Missouri numbers? Did you, you know, I mean, he was, you know, it was his, his questions were so leading because it was clear, you know, he was part of the problem. Um, and he was actually acting kind of as a defense attorney for the people who were involved. So Kavita, you were in the Obama administration. I was, I was in the Clinton administration. So I, that was too long ago. It was a different era, but you were in the, what, why are Democrats so friggin' feckless? <laughs> So I have my own cynical view of, I mean, this is just self-preservation to the extreme. Even in the House, I mean, Pelosi, let's be honest, like, like these are all people who always need to make a deal and they're not making deals with Josh Hawley, but, you know, I, I can tell you personally, having to be behind kind of on a conference committee when we were dealing with McConnell's people, I mean, you're, there is kind of this unspoken rule where you never quite go there. Now, this the Hollies and the Cruises of the world, Tom Cotton, even Rand Paul, you know, they're, they're a bit of a different breed. But in general, the reason the Senate kind of regarded themselves as the upper chamber is because there's a hundred of them. It's a small club. And, you know, we, we've talked about it on the podcast before. There's a sense that people know each other. They know their spouses, et cetera. That's decaying. And it's decaying where it's giving the Republicans, specifically McConnell and anybody who wants to be an idiot, have an upper hand. And Democrats, I, I mean, I'm just gonna say it even very, even more bluntly. I think it's become time to have a very serious conversation about the leadership on the Democratic Party side. Like, I think, Greg, was it you in the plumb line that talked about um, Klobuchar kind of also now finally like taking yeah. a stab at the filibuster? And 
you know, I'm sitting there thinking like, well, it's about freaking time. Like what, what took so long for these people to come around to it? And you know what it is, David? It's, I mean, I've worked on a campaign. They've seen the underbelly of what the people are saying and why they're getting angry. And it ties back to, well, we have to go back home and fundraise. And I, I just, I don't even know if there's any more there, there. It's why I'm now all for term limits on all sides. I just think that we're getting to a point where the it's uh, the Ryan's it, like your daily beast column, Greg, you're writing. It's spot on. The country should be angry at how these politicians are handling the questioning. And as a regular person watching it now, it, I don't know. It just gives me, I had, I had very little faith going into this on the one six commission idea. I have, I it's, it's, it's validated what little faith I have. And that's how I feel. Um, Brian, one of the things that also struck me in the midst of all of this is that the Republicans have not approved one single person for the Department of Justice. Now, you would think in the middle of this yes. crisis that's right. that you would have some kind of pressure to have a functioning Department of Justice. But clearly, for corrupt reasons, they don't want it. You know, they, and they're like, you know, opposed, you know, again, to, you know, people like Vanita Gupta, who has literally the support of everybody out there of both parties in her area. Um, you know, what's what's the what's the prognosis? Will this change, do you think, dramatically once some of those people get in? Well, I think that one item. So I guess I think, yes, in the sense that um, if we're going to hold out hope for some uh, institution or forum to deliver on some of these issues, like on, on uh, January 6th, I do think it might be the ongoing uh, criminal investigations, the FBI and the Justice Department. And I have to also imagine that there are some big ticket items that they are waiting to have an attorney general decide. And that might be, um, you know, there was a recent story about uh, debates that have been going on inside the Justice Department as to whether or not to open an investigation on Roger Stone for January 6th, I could imagine that they'd say, let's just hold this debate in place until we have a confirmed attorney general. Um, so I do think that if some of that comes to pass, which at some point it will, um, he'll be confirmed and then Lisa Monica will be confirmed. Uh, so for that dimension of things, um, I do think that there's some hope on the horizon, who knows which way it, it goes, but it makes it at least more likely that um, they'll follow, you know, follow the facts, follow the law. And that's uh, what a Attorney General Garland can actually accomplish. Yeah, one, one can certainly hope so, though. Although, you know, Greg, I mean, it goes back to your point about the filibuster. Um, the, if you want to justice, if you want to fix something in the United States, You've got to find a way to do it that doesn't involve the Senate. Mm. And, you know, it really we've we've gotten to the point where I mean, you know, this I don't know how you feel about this, but th what's going on right now as we rec record this in the Senate is one of the most infantile, idiotic things that you could possibly imagine where Ron Johnson, the moron senator who, you know, holds, you know, um, Joe McCarthy's old seat is sitting, you know, saying, we're, we're going to make this painful to pass 
So let's read the 684 page bill out loud. That'll take 10 hours. And then let's debate in full every idiotic amendment. They know that at the end of the day, this is going to pass with 51 votes. Not a single Republican will vote for helping their constituents for purely political reasons. The Democrats will eke this thing through and they're just playing a child's game. And yet somehow, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any outrage. Do you think that it, in 2022, there'll be some political consequence for this negative for them? Uh, I actually made an argument on this today that, that I hope is wrong. And I'll tell you what it is. It's that there's, there's a plausible scenario in which they don't pay a price. And I actually think the Ron Johnson thing kind of illustrates this in a way. You and I and, and pretty much most mainstream Americans would look at this exactly as you just described it, as a, as a silly childish stunt, right? But I, I think we all, you know, have trouble kind of grappling with just how far lost they all are in this kind of alternate right-wing information universe, right? And so we see this as childish, but it's going to play entirely differently in the right-wing media. It's going to be seen as a heroic stand. And so, you know, Schumer had a pretty good response today where he said, go ahead and read it all out. It's all very popular, right? Great. Let the American people know what's in it. But again, in this alternate information universe, none of that exists or is true, right? What they will see and hear in that alternate universe is he's taking a stand and look, he's highlighting this imaginary thing that about Pelosi and this other imaginary thing about a big payoff to some, you know, phantom uh, invented uh, power broker and so forth. And, and I really do think that we're in a place where for many Republican voters, right, they will be pocketing the stimulus check and they will be getting a sped up vaccine, right? And meanwhile, what they will be seeing is their lawmakers heroically railing against all the socialist excesses that were created for the right-wing media audience, right? And, and, and I think that's a problem, right? Because they, they're gonna, the, the voters are not going to say to themselves, my lawmakers voted against this check because they're gonna get the check. They're gonna get the check and their lawmakers, in their view, fought against socialism and AOC and Pelosi and Schumer and all these other devils and so forth. And I don't see a price. And, and by the way, the other piece of this that's often missing from the discussion, at least about the question of whether they can get away with this kind of stuff, is they have the voter suppression and counter-majoritarian tactics in place, gerrymandering and so forth. They think they can win the House back through gerrymandering. Yeah, so how much do you think the Senate, that voting rights bill that went through the House... I mean, what chance does that have in the Senate? Nothing. I mean, really. Well, especially if the filibuster isn't. Well, exactly. Right. Exactly. That's the point. I was just going to say, like, they virtually, I have said this now 15 years. I, I said it to Ted Kennedy's face. I'm like, McConnell always wins. Like, even when you don't think he wins, even when senators, like Democrats have a solid majority, McConnell always wins. And it just feels like that all over again. We all have to, what was it? It was the 2017, uh, the Obamacare uh, debacle for them when he practically cried on the Senate floor at one or two in the morning. I, you know, we can all kind of cling to that moment as, as being, you know, 
a consoling uh, event. Seriously, <laughs> uh, that was a very major event and a very loss. Yeah, although, you know, there's another dimension of this, and we attribute all this to McConnell, but the, the Republicans have a certain degree of discipline in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if McConnell says no one is voting for this, no one votes for it. And he manages them. And it goes back to your point, Kavita, about Democratic leadership. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Joe Biden, the brand new president of the United States, comes out. He campaigned on getting a $15 minimum wage for people. The minimum wage really should be about $22.50 if it kept up with uh, productivity in the United States. So 15 is too low. He campaigns on it. And Joe Manchin goes, nah, I don't know. And it's over. It, it ends at that particular point. And nobody, you know, there's no Lyndon Johnson who, you know, pulls him in while he's having an enema and says, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you got to do what you're going to do or you're, you're, you know, West Virginia is not going to have power for the next four years. Um, you know, that no, nothing happens. There's no consequences. And, you know, no. same, same, same with the point with cinema. You know, there's no, there's nobody running the show. It's tough to force Manchin to do something that way, isn't it? I mean, that's a big part of the problem. That type of pressure, I think, couldn't really work for him because of the political situation he's in and the incentives he has and so forth. Well, it just depends, you know. So some people, they're sticks and other people, they're carrots. You know, what does he want? What's more important to him? He's going to get reelected in any case. You sit down with Joe Manchin and say, what do you need? And he's going to say, well, slow walk, you're beating up on coal. You know, he's going to say some, there's going to be a deal there to be done in some way, but it's just not happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm naive, but, 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 you know, it's, that's, that's, that's the, 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 the way it seems to me. It's an interesting question, actually. I, it might be worth, you know, reporting out. Maybe, maybe I'll do it. What could you do in a situation like this, theoretically? To yeah. Well, what's, I mean, if, if the sticks don't work, what are the carrots? It, it just, you know, there's got to be something like that. You know, Ryan, part of this is hmm. I have to say, I listened to the CPAC meeting last week and I was like, okay, <clears throat> things are pretty good. Um, you know, I have a, I have a column that's going to come out. I think it's coming out tomorrow or, or, or Saturday morning, but in which I said, you know, the version of, of Donald Trump that we saw is kind of the fat Elvis version of Donald Trump. You know, he's kind of going out on stage, lackluster, slurring the words of the famous hit songs. He's got no energy. He's not the guy he used to be. He wasn't that guy throughout the whole campaign. And he's the one they're lining up behind. But on the other hand, they're not even lying. The third of the people at CPAC, which is a bunch of nuts, they don't want him to run again. There's a growing group of Republicans who don't want him to run again. And who do they want to run in his place? Ron DeSantis finished number two in that poll. Christy Nome. Christy Nome, who is, you know, this this woman who like systematically killed people in her state, um, you know, through through her COVID policies is is the is the next person down. I think Don Jr. was one of the next people down on this list. Their bench is terrible and their only policy is 
obstructing things. They're not actually for anything. They're not going to actually get anything done. Everything the Republican Party used to stand for, forgive the rant, is gone. The Republican Party, the party of patriotism, now the Russia thing. The Republican Party, the party of fiscal balance. Nope, every recession is under them. Every budget blows up under them. The Republican Party, the party of family value. Nope, Donald Trump. You know, this Republican Party, you know, isn't any of the thing. It has nothing left except obstruction. So I thought, that's pretty good. And demographics are moving in our direction. And yet, Listening to you, Greg and Kavita, I'm depressed. So you, you should, help me. You should be depressed. No, I'm not going to help you. I mean, there's no, I, I don't know how, I really do think that like our democracy, I listen to part of CPAC too, mostly to be appalled every time they panned over the audience to make an observation that, do you really think this looks like a lot of America or is it actually like a Harley Davidson commercial? Because that's what it really felt like. And I don't know, David, there are definitely days I do not know how to make you feel better because the Democratic Party, you know, we've put a lot of criticism on the Republican Party, the Democratic Party by not taking on the filibuster by not, or, or, or let's, let's put it this way. What I see Klobuchar, I mean, Greg, I just, I see a lot of this as incredibly tactical. Uh, it's in Klobuchar's best interest because she's got this kind of rising star. Country got to know who she was after she did a much kind of a more, you could argue she was more successful than some of our other presidential candidates on the Democratic side. And, and it's fine for her to do it. Where, where is, uh, where's everybody else? Where's Mark Warner, Michael Bennett, Tim Kent, you know, the, the mod squad, as they call them. They're not behind it. They, because they know, like many people do, that filibuster works both ways. It's, it's, it's something that they kind of want. And, and the reason they want it, David, is not for the benefit of the people. And, and, and by the way, same thing with these calls to get rid of the parliamentarian and all of these things. It's a, not a dirty secret. It's not a secret at all that senators love having the parliamentarian because there's kind of like a, a buffer there. Well, no, you know, things that we just don't want to deal with. Sorry, parliamentarian. And that's how that's how the Congress works. It really does. The House is a bunch of unruly, it's 435 misfits and a bunch of unruly people who kind of do whatever they want and don't have any manners. And the Senate, it's the upper chamber and they know how to really run the country. And that's how it feels. Okay, Ryan, that's our doctor speaking. She can't make us feel better. I do, I can. It's just, I'm, I I would have to do a telemedicine visit for it and charge yeah, you. Right, that. and right. And it would involve- A prescription you know, called into right, CBS. Ex- where you'd have to fight the mobs trying to get their vaccine at the yep, end of the day. That's, that's, so. you, are, you, are, you are sunshine and light today, Kavita. Ryan, tell me where you see a ray of sunshine in all this, other than Kavita. So, yeah, I was going to say, maybe we can talk about the pandemic. That'll make us better. Exactly. <laughs> it actually will. Today's the only day where the pandemic actually is better. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, if I'm correct, I believe uh, prior CPEC polls were, run, were one by um, Ron Paul a number of years in a row and then Rand Paul a number of years in a row. So, you know, comma, whatever. (laughs) I just don't. Okay. Well, that's, 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 that's encouraging. Right. In terms of like who they will offer up to be a, the next contender uh, for the white house and how scary a proposition that is. And then, you know, one of the other pieces for Trump is when he was speaking, we actually published a little bit ahead of time, 
a just security, a litigation chart that shows all of the civil litigation and criminal uh, probes that are facing him over the time horizon. So not only does he seem weakened, but that's really, I think, going to dominate a large part of his life um, for the next <laughs> year or two, um, including, you know, civil litigation that could seriously destroy his family financially in, in different ways um, and, and then lead to criminal um, investigations that will pop out of it. Um, so what kind of political force he will or won't be, um, I think is still very much up in the air uh, because of that uh, track and, and, and other tracks as well. So I just yeah. want you to know there in this article that's going to come out, there's a paragraph that says, you know, I'm paraphrasing. One of the things that makes me feel good is Just Security published a list of 12 <laughs> litigation points. Here it is. Here's the link. Go read the list. It'll make you feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually, since we published it, like we got emails in from people saying, oh, you forgot this, you know, this case against him in Chicago and this case. Against... So um, so I do think that he's a weakened animal um, and that's a good sign for our democracy and a bad sign for autocracy. Uh, but at the same time, you know, then others are trying to fill the void. So, you know, Mike Pence this past week, you know, wrote his op-ed so that he can carry the mantle of the big lie. Because then if he can maybe be the contender that was robbed of uh, his rightful place in the White House under the big lie, then that's what drives it. And so I'm very concerned about that uh, part of our country that Trump, you know, as people said before, it was a symptom, wasn't just the cause. So, you know, Greg, one of the things I look at this and I say, well, this COVID thing naturally fits under reconciliation. It's natural to get through under reconciliation. But where do we go from here? Looks like the next big thing is um, infrastructure. Infrastructure maybe fits under it. Um, infrastructure like COVID has about 80% public support. Uh, unlike this thing, if it's $2 trillion of infrastructure over 10 years, seven, 800 billion could get offset with various kinds of taxes and so forth. But um, it's hard to see anything happening in the United States Senate past that, if that happens. What, what's, the, what's the outlook? Or do we just you know, st you know, start watching reruns of WandaVision? Well, can I just say about the, the infrastructure package, putting aside for the moment what happens after that, I think that if they are able to do something fairly substantial on that front, after having done something very big, like the thing they're doing right now on COVID and economic relief, that's pretty tremendous stuff. Now, you're going to call me an optimist here. Um, but one thing I've been thinking a little bit about is how delivering on infrastructure, especially with maybe a climate component, right, um, and then the physical component, coming after uh, the aggressive use of government to juice the economy and tame the pandemic could really deliver a pretty severe blow to authoritarian populism, right? Because look, these are the things that, the, that Trumpism, as we call it, was supposed to be doing. Trumpism was supposed to be a break from Republican uh, economic orthodoxy, Republican small, small, uh, small limited government orthodoxy. Trumpism was supposed to do things like make America great through massive infrastructure repair, um, using the government to control supply chains, 
and so forth. And if Biden can do these things, I, I think that it occupies, that, that sends a big message to the country that, that progressive economics and progressive governance is really the route to, to uh, national revitalization. And, and I don't know where that leaves people like Josh Hawley, who are kind of struggling to find uh, a foothold in, in this kind of new, more respectable version of Trumpism that we call conservative populism. Uh, these guys are trying to find a way to run as the next Trump, but without sort of the Trump baggage and, and in a way that appeals to the, the certain types of conservative intellectuals. If, if Biden can deliver a bunch of big things, I think that that you know, puts progressivism, progressivism in a good place. No question about it. Now you're talking. Now I'm feeling a little bit better because, you know, one of the things, you know, sometimes you, we talk about what's happening in the news. We fail to talk about the things that that sort of aren't happening or, or, or could have happened but didn't. And one of the things that could have happened was that the Ob Biden administration could have bought in the Obama economic team. Mm -hmm. They could have brought in a bunch of people who were deficit hawks and inflation mm -hmm. hawks like Larry Summers, and they could have done the same thing Obama did and the same thing, by the way, Clinton did not do infrastructure, not seek the raise in the minimum wage, not seek the big solution as opposed to the small solution. And out of all of this, um, and Kavita, I would like to say, um, uh, uh, you know, drag you in here with me. I think a year ago, Perhaps you and I were both maybe a little bit wrong. Maybe Ryan, I don't know. But, you know, in the sense that I wouldn't have predicted that Joe Biden was going to do that. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and all of a sudden, Joe Biden is listening to Elizabeth Warren, mm -hmm. who's moving forward and can, under reconciliation, do her tax on billionaires. Uh, is listening to Bernie Sanders, who actually does have an interesting reconciliation path to on, on the $15 minimum wage where you raise taxes on companies that underpay people um, and, and so forth, and listening on infrastructure and not listening to those people. And by the way, and we're not going to talk about it here because we don't have time, we'll talk about it in the future. Same thing on foreign policy. It's not the same old thing. Joe Biden, 50-year... Washington insider establishment guy is actually giving, you know, space to some really progressive, interesting ideas. Surprised, Kavita? No, I, you're exactly right. I definitely am a little surprised, but then a couple of us were talking uh, who someone who worked for then Senator Biden, then Vice President Biden, and now works for him again and kind of reminding me you know it was larry summers it was kind of the conservative gaggle that uh tim geithner larry summers to your point during the economic stimulus and biden especially remember he had the same people around him bruce reed ron Klain, a number of jared bernstein a number of the same people around him who were the ones that were out of the room and they were the ones that actually told the vice president then that we're not doing enough you remember, this is when Biden and Obama, you know, they, they had no relationship really in the beginning. So when I thought about it, when that, when this individual kind of phrased that to me, I thought, you know, that does make sense, but you're right, David, absolutely. I was wrong a year ago and wouldn't have predicted any of this and good for, good for me, good for him for proving all of us wrong.
Yeah, no, I have to say there was a conversation I had with somebody who's very senior in the administration now, May, June, some some point. And I, I was kind of more drawn towards initially uh, Kamala and Elizabeth Warren, kind of, mm -hmm. I was kind of more in that way of thinking. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, Joe Biden's going to get elected. You can't implement any of this stuff unless you're in power. We can implement this stuff once he's in power mm -hmm. and we will. And I was like, that makes sense to me. I'm going to switch where I am and try to be as supportive as I possibly can be. And I haven't been disappointed mm -hmm. by Joe Biden. A lot of these other people in Washington we're talking about have disappointed me, but not Joe Biden. Ryan, we have 60 seconds and I give you the last word on all of this. Um, can I throw it back to you? Which uh, foreign policy changes did you think are surprises because they're in a more progressive direction? Um, I think he's changed. I mean, if, if you look at, at um, the speech Tony Blinken made yesterday, in which he enumerated an, a number of things, um, uh, he uh, sidestepped the whole American exceptional thing, exceptionalism thing in, a, in a, a kind of an explicit way, something that Obama had embraced. They have repeatedly and Tony specifically has repeatedly focused on some of the mistakes they made um, in Syria. Um, he, when he described the trade policy, the trade policy is not uh, the traditional free trade policy, the Larry Summers or those guys free trade policy. It's much more um, an American workers first kind of um, policy. Uh, it's a much more uh, humble stance uh, on things. And it is dramatically more domestically oriented. Also, if you recall in the Obama administration, when it started out, he was trying to show that he was going to be strong on the issue of terror. It didn't even come up literally in, in Tony Blinken's entire speech. You know, foreign, you know, extremism did not come up. So it was a very different, very different take than than you would have had. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'd, I'd even add to that maybe the ending of the forever wars and the reorientation to the Saudi relationship and the Yemen war. Right. And I, I also I also think one of the things you're going to see and 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 you saw Colin call tiptoe around it. But I think one of the things you're going to see is significant reform on on nuclear weapons. It'll it'll come and it's going to big deal. Pardon me. This review on drones seems to be a very big deal too. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, 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 th I think it is. And, and the other thing that's a big deal is, you know, Hillary Clinton talked about a pivot to Asia. Obama and some of the people closest to him didn't follow up on the pivot to Asia. Joe Biden's going to dial down the Middle East. And he, uh, again, in one of those really strong, striking things about the Blinken talk, and I did a thread on that if anybody wants to look for it on Twitter, but but the one of the striking things about what Blinken said, his eighth point was the biggest geopolitical challenge we face is the relationship with China. He didn't mention one other country as a priority. He mentioned some others as a sort of secondary issue. Can I point out a nuance there? I, I didn't see it, but to the degree that they're talking about the relationship with China as opposed to the China challenge, I would think that that's a positive. He, he, I, I have to say, again, the Blinken speech put it perfectly. He said, you know, where they are a rival, we will stand up to them. Um, where 
you know, we can cooperate with them. We will cooperate with them. You know, it, it, he, it, they, they got the relationship, you know, in, 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 the, in the right and new, in nuanced way. Well, look, I, I'm trying. This is not my role. You know, uh, you know, Corey on Mondays holds the tiara of optimism and I'm trying to wear it today. Obviously, it doesn't fit me very well. But um, uh, in a week when there's a lot to annoy us, there are a few things, I think, to lift us up. Um, uh, if you want to uh, understand all this better, by all means, follow Greg Sargent in The Washington Post. He has new stuff almost every day at the plumb line. Um, and uh, of course, uh, follow uh, Just Security and Ryan and his folks and Kavita, who's on TV all the time. And, you know, it looks like with Greg Abbott and, you know, yeah. uh, the governor of Mississippi, you'll be talking about the pandemic for many months to I come. I really hope not. <laughs> yeah, well, I really <laughs> you know, I, man, I like watching on TV, but I, I have to say they're really doing everything in their power to prolong this. Uh, we've got all sorts of interesting things uh, coming up and uh, you should go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out about them. And uh, we'll see you again here real soon. And in the meantime, everybody stay healthy. <laughs>